Well, good morning, and uh, welcome again to Journey. And uh, it is good always to hear one of our ministry partners. Uh, they, they are, of course, in Lexington and serve our area as well. So we're excited about partnering with Natalie's sisters and the good work that they're doing there. And, uh, you know, I don't know if you are, have been following our Facebook page uh, much, but uh, we have a bunch of students who have spent all weekend uh, serving and ministering to our community in various ways. So I'm, I'm really proud of these, especially all these young guys on the front row. Um, how awesome is that, uh, teenagers? So we want to uh, just commend and encourage them. And uh, I know they had a great weekend. Now, we'll give them a hand. All right, we're going to jump back uh, into our study of the book of First Peter. And, um, and I was thinking as we've gone through this book, and uh, many of you guys have responded in different ways, just talking about how the Scripture spoken to you, because uh, we talked a lot about suffering, and suffering is universal. It's not personal to you. Uh, you're not the only one suffering, but it's universal. We're all going to suffer. So maybe it's just kind of resonated with you to say, wow, that's something I think about and deal with. And Peter has been very honest uh, about that. And we know that suffering and crises and challenges are a part of every, every person's life. And, you know, if you could look at the, the newspaper, if you read that anymore, or online, whatever it may be, and you see the headlines that kind of scream out to you, they're rather alarming sometimes. I just took one, one segment or just one glance at the headlines, and, and these are some things I read. Financial guru who predicted the last financial crisis warns of upcoming freefall. Uh, experts issue a dire warning about artificial intelligence and encourage limits to be imposed. The FBI director calls China America's biggest threat. Authorities warn of North Korean cyber attack. As NATO holds more nuclear talks, Russia warns of World War III. New statistics on growing persecution against Christians. And that's just a sampling. If you look at the media at all, you know that there are a lot of things out there that um, are alarming to us. They're kind of scary to think about what might happen if those things that are now cultural problems might erupt literally into a cultural crisis. And I know that all of us, I think we look at life and we say, wow, I wish things were getting better, but it doesn't always seem like things are improving. Most of us think as Americans that things are getting worse. A survey was taken that found that 60% of Americans believe the country will be worse off in 25 years than today. It's not very optimistic. And I don't want to be the bearer of all kind of bad news, but the reality is, is that there are plenty of problems, right? There are social problems and moral issues and financial issues and international issues, and there are issues you have personally. Again, to be honest with you, we're all aging a little bit. We're all getting older, which is there's only alternative to that, only one alternative, but, um, but the reality is you're probably going to get older and you're probably going to have some health issues. It's just a part of life. Now, all of that sounds like really belly bad news. You're already down, I'm sure, at this point. But there is good news. There's good news. The things we've talked about are things that we can't control. The things that we don't have any ability all to dictate, to change, to improve, to prevent, or anything else. They're going to happen. They're going to come. You can't control the future, but you can control how you live in the midst of it. You can control how you respond to the world around you. So we're finishing up a study today, actually in the book of uh, 1 Peter, where today's the last message in this study. And Peter's going to give some final advice to us about how to face and survive the upcoming crisis in our life and do that as a believer. So I'm kind of excited to talk about this because this is kind of like the final words of Peter. Uh, throughout the book, we have talked a lot about suffering. We've talked about challenges. We talked about persecution a lot, coming persecution. 
and uh, to, as believers, potentially so. And we talked about persecution around the world a few times. And this has really been relevant to us because the church of Peter's day was facing a very similar situation as we face today. And that is a morally declining nation, financial threats all around us, a fragile world peace, and coming persecution for being a Christian. So all those things we can identify and say those are likely for us to face as time goes on. And so when Peter comes to the final chapter of this book, he tells us that as these crises increases, there needs to be people who step up to lead through them. That's kind of what the last chapter is really all about. That when crises increase, leadership must increase. Now, when you think about it, you might say, well, I'm not a leader, but almost all of us are in some way. We're all leaders in some aspect. If you're a parent, you're automatically a leader. If you're a teacher, you're a leader. If you're a, a boss, a team leader, you're a ministry leader in the church, wherever you may be, we all lead someone. So stop thinking about yourself just needing to be led and think about yourself leading other people. See, as we accumulate experience and knowledge, and as we have our own successes and failures, God allows us to go through these situations, and then in turn, God uses those things um, to share with other people, both the good and the bad. Sometimes we learn as much from our failures as we do from our successes. And we've been looking at with the little, little bumper we had talks about Peter, that Peter was an odd guy, he had an odd life. He had a good God, though, and he came to know, and it changed his life. But you think about Peter, Peter had a three-year internship with Jesus, the greatest leader of all time. He spent his time walking with Jesus in the footsteps of Jesus, becoming a disciple of Jesus. He was a member of a 12-person uh, small group that were trained and discipled and then commissioned by Jesus. And then the Bible says that they went out and they turned the world upside down. So I think Peter is probably pretty qualified to be able to tell us about the importance of leadership, the importance of not just recognizing that I need someone to look to, but in times I may need to be the one that other people look toward. And so I encourage you on leadership as we talk about today. Also, when you think about the life of Peter, we know that Peter knew what it was like to fail and to suffer. You know, a lot of us say, well, I'm not a great leader because I haven't had that many successes. Maybe, I've, maybe you fell greatly in, in some area and you are, are kind of struggling because of that and you don't see yourself in a positive light. But think about the, uh, the apostle Peter. At one point, Jesus told Peter that Satan was going to test him. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you <coughs> that he might ship you as wheat. Now, of course, Peter denied that. Satan has got nothing on me. We all feel like we're stronger than we really are. And so uh, Peter said, I'm not going to fall. But just a few hours later, just shortly after Jesus said this, Peter denied even knowing who Jesus was three times as Jesus had predicted. So Jesus knew that Peter was going to be tested. He knew that Peter was going to fail. But then he said this verse immediately in verse 32, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Even before Peter failed, Jesus knew he would fail, but he also knew he would recover. And let me tell you, God has a lot of hope for you, and even if you've failed greatly, God can use you in great ways. It's also interesting to see that God allowed Peter, who was Jesus' like number one guy, just like Job we talked about in the Old Testament, he allowed Peter to be tested knowing that they would overcome Satan in the end, and knowing that they would bring the glory to God. So Peter did so. He overcame that failure. He repented. He was reinstated by Jesus and actually became the leader of the early church and wrote 
uh, these two books of the Bible that we've been studying on the last few weeks now. And so Peter is a, a, an experienced, accomplished, uh, failed, successful leader in every way. But by this point in writing this, he's not only giving his own experience, he's given the inspiration of God. And so he gives us this last chapter by encouraging us uh, as elders or leaders in the church in whatever role we may play. And he uses an analogy that Jesus has used quite often, and that is a shepherd. Jesus said, we are sheep, he is the good shepherd. And he uses this analogy that we as leaders in the church, as Christian parents, as Christian ministry leaders, whoever we may be, or just Christians who are out there in the field, that we have a responsibility to shepherd as Jesus did. He said, we are under shepherds of the chief shepherd. So let's jump in and read here in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and as a witness of Christ's suffering, who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those um, entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. So Peter here gives us some ways <coughs> that we can survive the coming uh, crisis by being good leaders and also by, also by letting good leaders lead us. First of all, Peter says, if you're going to survive, you have to find your, your shepherd. You have to select a shepherd. Who do you listen to and follow? You know, there's no doubt that in the Bible, um, we are warned against false teachers. And we're challenged to find teachers who are true teachers. And the only measure we can de determine that by, obviously, is faithfulness to God's word. So when you listen to someone who's telling you opposite of what the Bible has to say, you would say that would be a false teacher. And whenever you see someone that sticks with the Bible, that teaches God's word, that may be someone that you might want to let be your shepherd, right? So the Bible also there talks about a, a crucial leadership principle, and that is single headship and plural leadership. Now that principle runs throughout so much of our life. We see it first of all in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. In that relationship, they are one, they're individual personalities, but they're one. But the father is the headship of the three, right? You see it in families. Parents are the leaders of their family. But the Bible also says that the husband is to be the head of the home. It's also true in business, in the business world. There's always going to be a leadership team, but there's always what? There's a CEO, right? There's someone that's there kind of at the, the headship. So this principle in the Bible also runs throughout most of our life. Teams or committees don't lead things very well. If you've ever been a part of a committee, um, it's hard to get consensus. It's hard to lead collectively. But the same thing is kind of true in the church. And, uh, and our governance model as a church reflects this biblical principle. So we have our, here at our church, we have a leadership team. We have our elders. There are four of us who are over the church. I am one of those four. But management and management decisions are delegated to the senior minister and the staff. Now, if there is not any plural leadership in the church, it can easily become a dictatorship. But if there's only plural leadership, it easily becomes a democracy. And neither one of those is kind of what the church is intended to be. What I heard someone say one time I like the best is that the church is a Christocracy, where that we all listen and are attuned to what Jesus might say. We all listen and follow him collectively. But we do that in kind of an organized way so that we we're all go together. As leaders, we're all under Christ. 
We're all accountable for the flock, as Peter talks about, and we seek to do his will. So our elders delegate authority, responsibility, and limitations, and then let leaders lead. Now, as we look at our model sometimes, it's not a perfect model. But as Tony likes to say, it's, it seems to be better than everything else that we've ever seen. It's not perfect, uh, but, but it feels like that God has allowed us to have a great leadership model. And, uh, and we believe this is the best way that God wants us to lead our church. So Peter kind of talks about that. And so he kind of takes a, a headship role. He talks about this apostolic authority that he has. That he was trained by Jesus. He was an apostle. And he has the right to say these things. He is the leader of leaders. He's a pastor of pastors. He's a shepherd of under shepherds. And so that's why we can listen up whenever someone like Peter talks. You know, we're living in a day and age when people don't like to be led. And we're living in a time when a lot of people don't want to, to lead either. And a time when it's hard to accept the biblical model of leadership. But the Bible says that all of us need a leader. Every one of us need a leader for accountability and for our spiritual growth. And I would say that I've just never seen anyone who didn't have a spiritual mentor, leader, recognized, or someone who didn't have a church community. I can't, I've never seen a healthy spiritual a life like that. Now, maybe it exists. I'm not saying it's not. But, but community is where God tells us to be. It's how we connect with other people. I've also found a lot of people are not willing to be leaders in the church, too. It's a real leadership crisis in a lot of churches. And I will tell you that we are so blessed here in our church to have great elders who are willing to lead. We never have to twist anybody's arm to be, to be an elder, but we spend quite a bit of time um, talking to that person and sharing what the responsibilities are before, before an Im invitation is offered there. And we base that on what the Bible has to say <clears throat> about elders in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So Peter kind of builds on that, elders, leaders in the church. Peter builds on that and says that leaders and elders should serve willingly as God will have you, not under compulsion. Now, compulsion, I think, is where you force someone to do something. You compel them. In other words, you kind of twist their arm or you guilt them or you shame them. We've all done that, you know, uh, uh, voluntold someone. I think that's how we say uh, you're going to do this, right? Uh, that's not the best way to recruit people, especially leaders. And in a church that doesn't have a healthy leadership stream, sometimes people who are unqualified and unwilling to lead are guilted into serving because nobody else will. And like I said before, God's blessed us in our church family. We have uh, several men who lead, who are asked to lead, and some of them even say, uh, you got plenty of leaders right now. Uh, let us step back. Uh, there's a humility there, which is awesome. And we try to maintain a leadership, uh, eldership of about four to five people, six maybe at the most. And uh, that just seems to serve really well in our church family. So that's kind of how we do that. But Peter says that whenever you're called to serve, that we need to serve as God will have us, doing the things that God has equipped us and called us to do. Now, there's two problems with that. First of all, some people refuse to do the things that God calls them to do. Now, how do we know what God calls someone to do. Well, obviously, I'll talk about that in a moment, but, but obviously God has gifted people in the church to meet all of the needs. So if there's ever a need in the church that's not being met, someone's refusing to do what God has called them and gifted them to do. So that's important to recognize. And then some other people do the things that God has not called them to do. And it doesn't always work out well, right? You know, a lot of times people are eager to serve, but maybe haven't found that niche just yet that God has gifted them for. 
So some people are kind of consumer-minded when they come in, like, a, like it's a club. I want to know, what, I, what am I going to get out of this? And, you know, what, what, what's for me? But instead, whenever we think about serving, we ought to think about what are the needs of the church? And how can I serve the church? What are the areas that, that the church can improve? How can I make the ministry better? And that really is oftentimes a process of learning and, and trying new things and adjusting as we get experience and as we find out what our strengths and weaknesses are. You know, I, I see this in a lot of areas, and, and one of the areas I want to commend a couple of guys, Tony and Eric. As we, uh, last week, we announced that um, we have hired Crystal Collins, who's going to be our new children's minister. Uh, she'll be coming in, but we're not losing Eric because Eric's going to move into a different role. But a few weeks ago, I was having separate conversations with Tony and Eric, and, uh, and these guys have been around almost 10 years, so, uh, so we know their strengths, they know their strengths and weaknesses, and we got together in a room, and we just sat down and said, you know, one of them said, I think you're maybe better at this than I am, and so we just kind of passed things back and forth. So once we learn what our strengths and weaknesses are, we're better able to serve in a way that's faithful to God. But let me also tell you, it's not just limited to staff or to elders, because the Bible tells us that every follower of Christ is called to serve and lead in serving. Every one of us are. I don't know if you're serving anywhere, but if you're not, you need to be, because God has gifted you, and you may fall into one of those categories of people who has been called and gifted, but is refusing to serve. So I want to encourage you to think and pray about where God might uh, need you to plug in, and, and we'll help you do that as well. What is God calling you to do? A lot of people say, well, I don't know what God's calling me to do. In fact, most of us would probably out of the blue say, I don't know what God wants me to do. Uh, they don't have any idea. And here's the way you find out. To, to find out, you need to pray. Maybe you need to fast, but you also need to experiment. Because there are times that, you know, you might, uh, you might think you want to do something, but when you actually do it, you find that that didn't work so well. I wasn't great at it. I didn't enjoy it. And people didn't seem to enjoy it either, you know? And that's true in the church. It's true with, with everything. To, to find God's will, you've got to spend a little bit of time. You've got to experiment. Where's God moving? What's God doing? Do I enjoy this? Do I feel fulfilled by doing this? To also find God's will, sometimes you have to let go of some of the good to find the best. You may be trying to do too much. I've seen people burn out in those sort of things. I'll use Crystal as an example for that. If you know Crystal, she is awesome at worship. Uh, I love to hear her sing. She has a beautiful voice. She's awesome. She's part also of our Celebrate Recovery volunteer staff. She has an amazing testimony of what God's done in her life, and she loves people, loves loving on people. She's great at that. Crystal has a love for children. We know that uh, with Journey Camp and serving every Sunday in the back as well. Now, no one could possibly do all those things and do them well. And so you probably haven't seen Crystal up on the stage lately because she's pruned back that part of her life, even though she's very gifted in that. And there's other areas that she's obviously going to have to prune back as well. And we've already had some of that conversation as, as she comes on staff. But to recognize that, hey, I can't do everything great. But whatever I do, I want to do, ask for the Lord and the very best that I can do. So Peter says that whatever our gifting is, we should serve with certain qualities. And these are true, not only for elders, but for everyone. First of all, you do not serve for shameful gain or dishonest gain or for greed. In other words, thinking, what am I going to get out of this? What kind of contact, what kind of networking am I going to make in the church? A church is not designed for networking or, or connecting with people for your own personal gain. 
Serving shouldn't be an ego trip. It shouldn't be some way uh, to help ourselves feel better about ourselves, even though it will. It'll be fulfilling, but it's not really what we come into it for. He also said serve eagerly, willingly, and excited about serving with the attitude, what do I need? What does the church need? What can I do? What can I bring to it? Be eager to serve. He also said, do not be domineering or overbearing to those in your charge. You know, leaders especially have to lead, but not seek to control everything. And they need a healthy level of humility. A lot of us, if you've been in the church world very long, you know that some leaders, some elders can fail in this area. You know, they're not leading with humility, not leading with with self-control. And then a leader also needs to be an example to the flock, not just teaching it, but also actually doing it. Our greatest influence is what we do, not always what we say. And that's true in every level of leadership, parenting, teaching, whatever it may be. I believe that leadership is really high-level discipleship. And it asks someone to step in our steps, to follow after us as we are following Jesus. In fact, that's what the Apostle Paul said. He said, be an imitator of me as I am imitator of Christ. And that's where we need to be. That's a high goal that few of us would, would claim, but that's what leadership is really all about. And those who lead and shepherd under Jesus, who is the chief, chief shepherd, have to always stay connected closely to him. If you're trying to lead with your own strength, or you're trying to lead without your connection to Jesus, you're going to fail. Peter says here that when the chief shepherd appears, that is, when he comes back, when Jesus returns, we're going to be rewarded for our faithfulness, leadership, and our service. And he says, there's two things you're going to receive when Jesus comes back, if you're a faithful leader. First of all, you're going to receive, uh, be the partaker in the glory that's to be revealed. Now, we're going to be a part of the kingdom that comes And we're going to experience that amazing joy of being with Jesus. We're going to experience heaven. That would be enough. But then he also adds, you're going to receive the unfading crown of glory, the crown of glory that's going to be given to those who serve and lead faithfully. If you want to kind of Google something sometime and and, then read an interesting study, probably you've never looked at, look at the crowns sometime, what the Bible says about the crowns that are going to be given in, in glory. Really interesting. It talks about this is the unfading crown of glory for those who serve and lead faithfully. So the reward for our faithfulness doesn't come in the moment, doesn't always come immediately. In fact, somebody may not even notice what we do. But I will tell you, what happens in the back, in the nursery, is just as important as what happens right here this morning. Just as important. Because the lives are being formed and shaped no matter where we are. And the reward for our faithfulness comes when when Jesus returns. Now, on the other hand, you might get the praise of men up front, but you have to be careful about that because that can be very alluring and that can be attractive and we can even perform for those type of things. So we have to decide if we're going to please God or make people happy because like we said last week, you can't do, do both. And one thing Peter reminds us is that one day we're going to stand before Jesus and we want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your masters. So we need to have a good leader or be a leader. Secondly, he tells us, find your flock. Find your shepherd, but find your flock as well. In the same way, he writes, you who are younger, submit yourself to your elders. All of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud, but gives favor, shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that they may, he may lift you up in due time. Cast all of your anxiety on him because he cares for you. 
So what Peter is saying is you need not only a leader, but you also need a community. You need a flock to belong to. Sheep need other sheep. That's what my wife told me when we ended up with two sheep. She said, we can't have just one sheep. So we have two sheep now. Max and Sammy are our sheep. But the reality is that we do need each other. We need people around us all the time, right? God saw that in creation when he looked at Adam and said, it's not good for man to be alone. And so it created woman. But also that extends into relationships as well. Peter says that in in the uh, church family that the younger should look to the older for counsel and advice. So if you are wise, find someone that you can spend some time with. Someone who probably is older, at least in the faith, and kind of learn from that person. And find a flock or a community inside the church, a place to belong. The reality is you will not last long as a Lone Ranger Christian. And I can say that from experience. This is my 40th year of ministry. And I can't tell you how many people I've seen come into their faith with so much excitement, but never, ever get connected anywhere. And at some point, Satan steals you away. You just can't do it alone. You need a community to belong to and to grow within. I think every Christian needs a home church and a place to belong to, to come under the leadership of that church for their protection and their love and their instruction. And let them lead you. Not to be so proud, I can do it on my own, we just can't do it. Churches are not perfect. 40 years has proven that to me. I've seen it too many times. We're not perfect, but we're the body of Christ. And it's, it's God's plan. And as such, they deserve our commitment and loyalty. And by the way, it's likely that you're not perfect either, possibly. So show lots of grace to your church. When your church drops the ball a little bit, show grace and, and love them. And maybe offer to help a little bit in that area that you, that you see they're missing in. But a lot of people don't want anyone to tell them what to do. Peter says this in verse 5, that you should clothe yourself with humility toward one another. And also that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. People who think they know everything, God, God has a lesson to teach them, and it may just happen. But God shows grace to the, to the, to the humble. Now, grace is unmerited favor of God. How does God show grace to the humble? Well, he hears their prayers, and he gives them strength, and he meets their needs, and he blesses them. Humility is what God calls us to do. The Bible talks about humility over 900 times. So it's a pretty big, important topic in the Bible. Jesus is the example. He was strong, but he was humble, and he teaches us how to live. And we can show humility no matter what the nature of the relationship, whether we're the leader or the follower. Uh, it's important to be humble whether you're leading or following someone. Well, the third strategy that, that Peter gives us here to wrap up this chapter and the book is number three, look out for the, 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 the enemy, the lion. Look out for Satan. Here's what he says in verse Verse 8, be alert and of a sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. So here, Peter is uh, describing Satan as a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He says, be alert, be aware of your surroundings. Be aware that you are always in danger. There's always an evil one who's trying to get you. He is on the prowl. Uh, I like to uh, kind of watch those videos sometimes that people take of their ring camera or of a, a trail camera, and they got a mountain lion right outside their house and, at night, and they never know it, right? That's how Satan is. He's out there looking for people, weak people, who, who, are, who can be easily taken. He is not your friend. 
The hell's not going to be a place of enjoying all your friends and, and a place of fun. Far from that. I think sometimes that many Christians underestimate Satan. We don't recognize him. And in fact, sometimes the work that he does and damaging us, we oftentimes blame each other for, and we even blame God for at times. But understand that the evil one is the one who brings our sufferings on us. And he is all of our enemies. He is crafty. The Bible says he often appears like an angel of light. You may think you're doing the very right thing when actually you're doing the thing that is opposing God. He's sneaky. He sneaks around. He prowls around, but he also roars. That's kind of interesting. How, how can you be afraid of a roaring lion? Well, have you ever heard of anybody being paralyzed with fear and anxiety and worries about something? When you're paralyzed and you hear Satan roaring about this and you think it's out of God's control, that's what he's talking about. But here's what he also tells us, that we can defeat him by resisting him and standing firm against him. We need to respect his power, but we should not fear him because he doesn't have anywhere near the power of God. And the Bible promises that no matter what happens, there's always going to be a way to escape it. Here's what it says in 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God's faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So the Bible promises us that if we resist Satan, he will flee. And there will be a way out of his temptation, but he will always come back as well. It's a promise and a warning. And then Peter closes his chapter and the letter by saying, in the God of all praise, grace, who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, that is the church, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings. And so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ Jesus. I want you to kind of look at this letter and the whole Bible as God's letter or message to you. You directly. And that's kind of Peter really tries to make it personal here at the end. He says, you've been called by the God of all grace to come and join him in his eternal home and to find glory in Christ Jesus. That God, as a child of God, you have a special invitation and a special place in heaven for you. And you're going to suffer for a little while, maybe a long while in earthly times. But in the big picture, that's just a blip on the timeline of eternity. That God is going to sustain you through your suffering. God is going to restore you and make you strong and firm and establish you in a place where you will grow and flourish. So let me give you a couple things just to wrap up. Final thoughts from 1 Peter. First of all, you're going to suffer, but God's going to give you grace to endure it. Secondly, you will feel overwhelmed in life, but God will restore you, confirm you, strengthen and establish you. You're going to want to run to fear or in fear, number three, but God wants you to stand firm in your faith. And number four, you will have anxiety and suffer, but God has friendship, grace, love, and peace for you, no matter what. See, the letter was written to people in crisis who were struggling and fearful to give them hope and encouragement and remind them that even though life may be difficult, that we can't overcome. And that would be my encouragement and my message to you today. You know, many of you know that my mom passed away this past Wednesday. Uh, she fell, broke a hip, and just could not recover from that. 
Um, some of you know my mom. It's been several years since they were here, but um, over the last few years, her health has really failed. But uh, my mom suffered a lot. My mom had a, uh, a paralyzed vocal cord. She could not speak, and it's probably been 40-some years that she's able to speak uh, clearly. My mom had scoliosis. Uh, my mom had this um, incredible arthritis. I've never seen anything like it in my life with her fingers and, and toes. Just unbelievable. And, and the pain that she was in constantly. But I will tell you, my mother <coughs> was perfect. <laughs> and um, she, uh, I'm sure not in every way, but in my opinion, she was. Um, but she loved the Lord. And she instilled that in her family and her children. And you know, um, today we have peace, we grieve, but we have hope and we have peace. I saw her suffering and I saw, I knew, you know, the best thing that possibly would happen would be that if she went to be with the Lord. So it was very easy for us to say goodbye to her. And, um, and we long, and we know we will see her again. But I'm, my, I just pray that you have that kind of hope in your life, regardless of the suffering that you may have to endure. And it may be on different levels physically. I, I don't know. But whatever it is, there's a God who loves you and wants you to be with him forever. And you can endure. He will give you strength to endure no matter what and find hope and promise in heaven. And that's what I want for every one of us, what God wants for all of us, my prayer for you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, as we come today, uh, we want to thank you for, for Peter and Father, even his failures, because we know our failures sometimes, uh, they give us the <coughs> incentive to get back up and keep going and, and really re, uh, reignite us. So, Lord, I pray that all of us who have failed, maybe in great ways, God, that we would see you haven't given up on us, Lord. And, God, all of those of us who suffer and who wonder, is it worth it, we would say, yes, it definitely is. Father, for all of us, based on our lesson today, who, who lead in any way as parents or whatever role it may be, even as a friend that others look to, Lord, you would give us encouragement. And you would give us hope and faithfulness, God, and confidence that the journey is worth traveling. And that, God, we can be faithful in you. And, Lord, help us long for that great reward, that unfading crown of glory, and share in your glory, Lord, when you return. Father, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship him.